and welcome to Voices of Nexus, where experts discuss and debate issues surrounding mental health. Here in the U.S., it is a sad but common observation that our mental health system is broken. People who need help often can't or don't know how to get it, and resources remain underutilized due to stigma or lack of awareness. Many experience crisis before any intervention. Given the added pressures we face today, these faults are doubly exposed. But there are bright spots. There are visionaries working tirelessly to create a better tomorrow and move us from hopeless to hopeful. Here on Voices of Nexus, we will learn about good progress being made as it relates to the mental health of women, youth, and those in the justice system. This podcast is part of the larger Nexus initiative, sponsored by Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Inc. Please check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this third episode of Voices of Nexus. I'm Eli Perez, Director of Patient Advocacy and Stakeholder Management at Otsuka America Pharmaceutical, and I'm also your host today. Today, we'll be talking about the intersections between mental health and the criminal justice system. Once an individual enters the justice system, his or her life becomes exponentially more complicated. Now, when that person has a mental illness, those complexities are compounded. According to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 2 million people with mental illness are placed in jail each year. Often, an individual experiences a mental health crisis and encounters a justice system before receiving mental health support. In fact, there are 10 times as many individuals with serious mental illness that are incarcerated than there are in any state hospitals. There is much to be improved in the way that the justice system and the mental health system work together. Too many people are falling through the cracks between these two systems. A critical first step toward more effective, coordinated mental health response is education. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from two experts and having them unpack the way the professionals in the justice system are educated about mental illness. First, on the line with us is Chris Seeley, Program Director of School and Justice Initiatives at the American Psychiatric Association Foundation. Chris, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the APA Foundation? Well, thank you so much, Eli, and, and thanks for inviting me to be a part of this discussion today. A part of the APA Foundation, really our mission is to advance a mentally healthy nation for all where you live, learn, work, and worship. And my focus is really where you live, overseeing those justice initiatives, and then where you learn looking at that school-based initiatives. Thank you for that, Chris. Great to have you today. Our second guest is Susan Lockwood-Roberts. And Susan is the president of the Correctional Education Association. Susan, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the CEA? Well, hi. It's great to be part of this conversation. I am the president of our executive board. CEA is a recognized leader in corrections education, both in the U.S. and internationally. And our mission is to empower our members to provide transformational learning opportunities. We believe that education is the key to effective rehabilitation, and our members are basically comprised of individuals who are teachers and school administrators in correctional settings. Fantastic. Thank you, Susan, for joining us. Looking forward to our conversation today. So let's jump right into it. My first question is to Chris. 
So Chris, in the work that you're doing at the APA Foundation, can you tell us a little bit about some of the most critical gaps that exist in the mental health professionals' knowledge about the justice system? So as you work with your psychiatry membership, what gaps in their knowledge do you see about the justice system? Great question, Eli. And I think two that are interrelated really come to mind. I think bias towards this population and then not understanding how someone ends up here. If you hold a bias towards an individual, you lack the ability to really connect to that person's life story. And if you do not care about a person's story, how can you break down the biases that you hold? So this knowledge gap really does create a vicious cycle. We use biases to distance ourselves from them, whatever that them group means. And our U.S. societal fears is that everyone in this criminal justice system is a sociopathic killer, a drug addict, a rapist, or a gang member. And we also associate all of those labels with people of color, especially men. So our collective fear feeds these biases and these stereotypes and allows us to distance ourselves or ignore and punish people that we put into these categories. So, you know, as we think about that, what uh, I would encourage mental health professionals to do to kind of unpack that fear is to go through some self-screening questions. You know, who is this individual in the criminal justice system? Not just a a black person or a bad person. What is their life story? You know, looking at adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, looking at the trauma that might be involved. Why did they behave a certain way to end up in this criminal justice system? Was this overuse of policing, false accusation, misunderstanding, or something else? You know, this is the how did they get there? And lastly, is there an underlying health issue that contributed to their behavior? Can treatment help and what type of treatment could help this individual? Kind of going through that exploration and assessment of the individual's story allows us to start to see the person and not just that label. And that person has a story that needs to be heard and understood. And when we can address the person's need, both from, I think, a clinical and and a social sense, and to not be afraid of the person, but develop empathy and take a recovery-oriented approach to their care. You know, Chris, I actually would say the same thing from the other perspective. A lot of people don't understand the justice system, although more and more people are being impacted by it because of mass incarceration, just about everybody knows somebody who is in prison or in in jail. But one thing, I mean, I think in general, there are knowledge gaps across all of society when it comes to mental health. And so it just makes sense that there are knowledge gaps within the justice system. And so just the fact that most people don't really talk about mental health then I think that people with mental health diagnosis, they are very misunderstood. And so people in general don't know how to respond to a person whose mental illness is manifesting itself with behaviors that are unapproachable. And so they call the police and the police are expected to handle it, but they're not trained mental health professionals. And so they can't really be expected to know how to address those types of situations. And so I just feel like we need more options for people with a mental health diagnosis to receive care when they're in crisis so they don't end up in the justice system. You know, I think you bring up a really good point about trying to catch this earlier. You know, I think especially when we think about, you know, the the APA and, and psychiatrists, 
really their training is to deal with the most, most acutely ill and, and those in very crisis situations and kind of moving up the stream towards social workers and, and counselors. If we could connect people sooner to those services when some of those behaviors might come up instead of having the police be the response, maybe that social worker or that connection to care being from that first sign or symptom. It's really crucial. I think also to your point of addressing, I think, the overflow into this justice system of individuals with mental illness. So that the gap of how individuals get there and I think the bias and the fear around, I think, the criminal justice system as a whole feeds into also how we criminalize mental illness. Well, when you were talking about ACEs, I will say that more and more people in the justice system who work, you know, justice professionals who work inside jails and prisons are being trained in recognizing trauma and the impact of trauma. So that's really good. But not everybody who has experienced trauma has an actual mental illness diagnosis, although, I mean, the two often overlap. So merely being trained on recognizing trauma doesn't always get to being able to understand those with a mental health diagnosis. And so I totally agree with that need for people to get what it is, what's the source of the behavior and why are people acting the way they do? Because lots of times they are behaving the way they do because they're in crisis or because they've been triggered in some way. And then we all need to be able to respond to that in a way that's therapeutic and not punitive. Absolutely. You know, I I just want to stay with you um, for a moment, Susan. So obviously, you know, we've been talking about the view of mental illness, its intersection with the justice system. And we've been talking about it outside of the prison system, right outside of jail and what we can do to ensure that individuals with mental health conditions never hopefully come into contact with the justice system. But as we know today, unfortunately, this is a reality and individuals with mental health conditions are not screened appropriately, diverted to the right resources, and a large number of these individuals do actually end up within a jail, within a prison. Obviously, Susan, your organization focuses on education within the prison system. One question I have for you is, Today, what kind of training do those individuals receive about mental health and mental illness, right? So as these individuals with mental health conditions come into a prison or a jail, the folks who are receiving them, the officers there, other workers, what kind of training do they receive around mental health? Well, everybody who works inside this environment, inside a jail or a prison, everyone goes through a variety of training on lots of different topics. I think that more and more jurisdictions are addressing this need to train staff in the area of mental health. The American Correctional Association has standards that are related to the provision of mental health services, and institutions need to meet those standards in order to be accredited, and some of those are around training. I did ask our state directors about the types of training their staff members receive just to kind of get an idea and an update. And this was just yesterday on a call that we have. We have a weekly call with our state directors. Some of them indicated there was minimal training and others spoke of extensive training. So it runs the whole, you know, the whole continuum. But in Alabama, for example, 
a licensed psychiatrist works with the Department of Corrections staff and puts together training. And then similarly in Louisiana, extensive training is provided by a licensed psychiatrist, but that's not the norm. I mean, maybe when I know what 17 years ago, when I first started in corrections, we had like maybe an hour lesson about mental health and that was pretty much it. And so it's something I believe that's evolving, but I don't think that a staff member can really know and be quote unquote trained in a one day training or even, you know, a couple of days. It's something that needs to be ongoing and they need to they need to be comprehensively trained. I think you bring up a great point, Susan, around kind of this is an ongoing educational effort. And I think that's also, you know, what we hope to continue to, I think, push in that public education side on, on, on both, you know, how do we recognize individuals who are coming into the jail, but also thinking about how do we support those individuals who are correctional workers and working in these spaces that are maybe high stress or they're seeing things as well. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering, Susan, you know, is is there resources or training that are given to these staff members around their own mental health and kind of well-being? It's interesting. There was a state director from Kansas yesterday who was actually talking about this, and it's more of a peer-led type of support. So they have trained teams that offer peer support to their staff. And especially, it is a very high-stress situation to you know work inside. However, it's even more stressful now because of COVID. And the stress is not only among the staff, but it's also among the incarcerated individuals because they can't move around the facility like they used to, and they can't interact with the program programming that they had. They're not able to get visits from their families, volunteers, and other people who come into the facility are being prohibited from coming in. And so there's just the stress is magnified because of COVID. And so these peer support teams for staff have actually been very useful. And so I know among the directors who were on our call yesterday, there was great interest in this. And, you know, they wanted to continue that conversation and learn more about it. But one thing that is clear is that the same kind of support isn't available for those who are incarcerated. Well, and I was actually just about to ask you that question, Susan, with regards to what type of educational programming from a mental health perspective is actually available to those who are incarcerated. I think those of us during this pandemic understand that we're all experiencing negative effects to our mental health. Working with partnership with organizations such as Mental Health America, they've seen a tremendous uh, increase in individuals tapping into their screeners. Um, Individuals are becoming aware of potentially a mental health condition that hadn't been diagnosed previously. Perhaps the symptomatology is, is a bit more milder, or perhaps this pandemic is now bringing forth symptoms that, you know, lay dormant, if you will, in the past. And I'm just wondering for individuals who are incarcerated, are there efforts to educate them about mental health, the importance of perhaps disclosing their mental health condition, entering into a relationship with the healthcare professionals so that they can receive the care that they need? 
I am not sure that there are efforts across the board. There might be in some jurisdictions. Actually, COVID has really compounded the ability to provide any kind of programming or education or rehabilitation inside the fence because everyone's very limited on who gets to go inside because they're trying to keep people, you know, keep the spread of the virus from happening. And so that's really what compounds all of this is that people are more isolated than ever before. And that's, that's really something that is very problematic. So Chris, um, coming back to you, I do want to ask you during our time today about the judges and psychiatrist leadership initiative that the APA foundation and particularly you oversee. So I know that you're working on developing resources to address gaps in mental health education when it comes to the understanding on behalf of judges and psychiatrists. Can you tell us a little bit about the program itself and the tools that you're developing to support this educational initiative? Yeah, uh, thank you, Eli. Yeah, the uh, Judges in Psychiatrist Leadership Initiative is a joint partnership with the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, along with the Council of State Governments Justice Center. And really, we kind of see it as really an exchange of knowledge uh, with judges being the experts in criminal justice and then psychiatrists being the experts in the mental health field and, and looking at how we can not only exchange knowledge, but look at the creation of resources and tools together. One way we do that is statewide judicial trainings that are held by both a judge and a psychiatrist. We've trained you know, over 1,300 judges so far. And what we're seeing is a, a shift, I think, from a national judiciary perspective to really want this mental health training to be brought, uh, especially across circuit court judges. Obviously, we're kind of shifting our in-person training to maybe do some more webinar services due to the different restrictions that are happening right now. But we also look at bench guides. You know, How can a, a judge recognize mental illness as they walk into their courtroom and kind of have this quick reference guide? And then when we look at psychiatrists, what ways can we educate them around criminogenic risk factors and how to implement that into treatment planning? Something that will be coming out shortly here, which was a joint effort between judges and psychiatrists, is a competency to stand trial paper that will be released here in hopefully July 2020. That will really set out standards on how we should think about competency restoration. If you're not really familiar with that, that's this concept of individuals coming into the pretrial stage and, and not being at a right mind to understand the court process. And each state's a little bit different, but really they just get them to a point of understanding that that's the judge. This is the person who's defending you. This is what a charge is. If you can understand that, then you can go through the process. And, and we don't think that's necessarily fair. So we're, we're looking to rework that. And we also look at newsletters. You know, how can we continue to put resources that other organizations, things like Nexus that are putting out uh, new thoughts and new ideas through a monthly newsletter? And we're looking to add an additional profile on leaders to really model how this leadership continues to kind of build. And we also have national partnerships through the National Center for State Courts with the support of the Conference of Chief Justices and Conference of State Court Administrators as well. It strikes me, having worked a long time with juveniles in the justice system, how the juveniles are actually very protected in that they have guidance, there are special laws around who can interview them without, they have to have parents or guardians with them, you know, all kinds of protections in that regard. And yet, a person with a mental illness who is an adult 
really needs to have those same kinds of protections and guidance, that's not afforded to them. And it almost seems like the same kinds of policies need to be in place. I have been a part of so many conversations across the country with judges and psychiatrists, and I think judges really are looking for that additional help, right? Like this this individual isn't being supported. How can I use my discretionary powers to get them connected to the right services? You know, if you're not in your, if you're not able to make decisions to really help yourself, are you really able to even engage in this process? And I think, Susan, you connecting it to the, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense, especially when we start to understand when people really enter the justice system and that your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25. And how do you also take that into account if they have a mental health concern and their impact into thinking logically and, and putting things into place to understand, well, this is connected to this consequence and this is what's going to happen further that's not afforded. And I, I do agree that we should probably start to think about how we push that from a policy level standpoint. You know, and even at the, the point of reentry, it's almost the same because a youth would need to be guided and supported through the reentry process, navigating all the different requirements, those kinds of things. And with an adult with a mental health diagnosis, you know, when they're released from incarceration, it's not unusual for them to be unconnected to the mental health treatment or the medication they need. And most of the time, they don't even have the resources to pay for that. And so I just am wondering, again, it just comes back to having people in place who can help navigate all of this with them and not just kind of leave it to them to just, here you go. Because then what happens is, you know, we have people who end up becoming reincarcerated because they aren't medicated or they're, they're not getting their services that they need. And so they get to a point where they're in crisis again, and they encounter the justice system again. And it just it's a cycle that perpetuates itself. Yeah, and I think that's why we want to look at, we encourage counties through another justice initiative, the Stepping Up Initiative, we, we encourage counties to look at that process in looking at warm handoffs. I think it was amazing to me to even hear a jail's thought process in, in changing the release time from 12.01 a.m. to 8.01 a.m., right? If you release somebody exactly. in the middle of the night where no resources are open, they can't right. get connected. And the reason that they yeah. were doing that was to not feed them breakfast, right? Like that there was there was reasons financially behind that, not realizing that that person, to your point, Susan, is probably going to get reincarcerated before breakfast is even served again because there's nothing for them. So releasing at 801, looking at social workers to do connection, whether or not you can work with a cab service in your local community or someone to transport at the point of release to reconnection, those warm handoffs. And I think just at the point of reentry and, and, and at release, but until they actually engage in the services, right? Getting a phone call, I think peer support, you know, hey, you know, you have a meeting tomorrow. Do you need help getting there? Right. Well, now you put it back into my mind that oh, I do have a meeting tomorrow. I need to make it there. And I have resources to help me get there. Exactly. And I do believe more and more jurisdictions are looking at this and are trying to do this. Again, it goes back to having the resources and having enough mental health professionals in the community to be able to support all of this. And so it's just not a simple answer. It's being able to bring everybody together to address a huge need. Yeah, you need Absolutely. everybody at the table. 
yeah, housing, mental health services, everybody needs to be there. Right. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of having, having everyone at the table, I think that's one of the driving forces behind the work that we're doing with Nexus, really being able to expand that group of stakeholders around the table to have discussions around solutions that have as many legs to them as possible, because it's important to look at every single phase of a problem and make sure that there are opportunities or, or systems in place to help individuals at all of the critical junctures in their journey. So I just want to turn the conversation just very quickly to Nexus itself and ask you both how your collaboration or how has the collaboration of Nexus been beneficial to the work that you're doing and what are you looking forward to as we move forward with Nexus? So I'll open it up to you both. Uh, Susan, do you want to start? Oh, sure. I'm, I'm happy to. I, I think it's really been interesting to learn about mental illness from the perspectives of the others in the group because just having those discussions and thinking through different issues and problems have given me a more comprehensive understanding of issues that people face when they come in contact with the justice system. It's clear to me that there's a huge need to educate people about mental illness and that people with mental illness need to be treated with as much compassion as people with any other debilitating disease. And bringing all these people together to discuss this and work through some of these issues have made it just that more clear to me. Ditto uh, exactly what Susan just said. And I think, you know, convening great thought leaders from various backgrounds and experiences where we have all collectively agreed in creating a space for open and critical dialogue, I I think leading to that learning that Susan spoke of. And though we all might be working in the space of mental health and recovering and learning from each other, I think we're seeking collaboration instead of competition within the Nexus space. And I think that's so, so important because this is such a complex puzzle. When you look at all of the pillars of Nexus and all of the different individuals involved, it's so complex and, and not one individual or organization is going to have a solution. It's going to take all of us together to really come up with that ideal solution. And I think one of the cooler insights that's been helpful just in my work is the social listening and the data that has been shared around how conversations have been shifting over time. I think it's very important for us working in this space because we want to be a part of these conversations, but more importantly, part of that solution for the challenges that everyone is talking about. So being able to shift the way that we're Speaking about things and being timely, I think, is so important. I agree with you. I really think that as I've learned more and then shared with the people in my organization, it's more apparent that people want, I mean, they they all want to solve the problem. They want to be part of the solution like you spoke of. And I think, you know, what I look forward to is continuing to lead that discussion and Think of ways that we can put even small pieces in place in the environments where we work that we can help try to move that needle forward. Well, thank you for, for that, both of you. And, you know, thank you for all your contributions to Nexus. We're very early in our journey as a collaborative working group, but I think we've made quite a bit of progress in terms of gaining a more thorough understanding of unmet needs and, and now really starting that process of ideating around solutions. So thank you for all your contributions to date and very much looking forward to your uh, continued contributions as we move forward. 
So as we come towards the end of our conversation today, I just wanted wanted to open it up to you both and ask you if there's anything else that you'd like to share about the work that your organizations are doing that you would like for the Nexus community to hear about, because obviously you're both doing great work with your respective organizations. We're doing great work together at Nexus, but we really want to highlight the work that you're all doing. So anything else that you'd like to share before we close? Chris, do you want to start us off? Sure. Thank you for this opportunity. Again, I think I'm just super excited to continue the work with Nexus. And I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but my work in the school-based side of things is, is directly connected to my work in this justice space. We have this Notice Talk Act at School program to not only address the gap from the first signs and symptoms to connection to care, which right now is around eight to 10 years but also to address the school-to-prison pipeline. Roughly 70% of students arrested or student-referred to law enforcement are Black or Latinx, far overrepresenting their prevalence in the general population. Students suspended and expelled for a discretionary violation are three times more likely to be in contact with the juvenile justice system in the following year. Students with disabilities represent 12% of the overall student enrollment, and 28% of the students referred to law enforcement or arrested. The most significant indicator predicting which children will be suspended is not the type of offense, but the color of their skin, their special education status, what school they go to, and whether they have been suspended before. 14 million students are in schools with police, but without at least one of the following school personnel, a counselor, a nurse, a psychologist, or social worker. We think effectively training school staff to notice disruptive behaviors, along with withdrawal behaviors, not just as a disruptive student, but a student who is going through something that may need additional support, how to talk to that student about what they've noticed, and then acting within that school's resources to connect them to those support services will not only address kind of this overrepresentation of SMI in our adult justice system, but also start to address the way that we look at those disruptive behaviors, especially towards our students of color. And I think that's really what, especially right now, I think that's something that we really want to continue to push forward around this conversation. Those are some sobering statistics. Sorry, Susan, but I think that that's great information to share. There is a high intersection between youth, as you mentioned, and the criminal justice system. And as you know, those are two of our pillars, right? Two of three pillars within the work that we're doing at Nexus. One is focused on youth. One is focused on the justice system. The third is focused on women, women's mental health. And we do know that in the work that we're doing, there is a high degree of intersection between that youth and that justice system pillar. So really appreciate what you just shared. And I'm sorry, Susan, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say, it's just amazing that, that Chris spoke of this because one of the things, I mean, it just speaks to my heart. You're exactly right. It's very, very sobering. And the whole idea around the school to prison pipeline, it's very real. And I've been collaborating with some colleagues at Indiana University, and we're publishing an article about the school to prison pipeline and how we need to work with pre-service teachers and help them understand and know how to address these behaviors in the classroom, just like Chris was talking about. So right at the very beginning, you know, helping them, people who are learning to be teachers, helping them know how to address all of this in a classroom prior to expelling them, what other things can happen. And so as educators, that's one of the things that we are very in tune to and being proactive and trying to 
keep young people on a positive life trajectory to begin with so that they don't end up in an adult prison later where we're teaching them as correctional educators. Thank you, Susan. So I want to thank both of you for your time today. We are at the close of our conversation. This was a fantastic discussion. I think we've covered quite a number of different points where potentially we have an opportunity to intervene, put programs, messaging into place to to make a difference in individuals' lives who absolutely need the support to hopefully not come into contact with the justice system, but if they do, to make that time within the justice system as short and as productive as possible to ensure that they get the resources that they need and get diverted to the appropriate types of supports, you know, from a mental health care perspective. So thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate the discussion and looking forward to continuing to work with both of you and what we're doing with Nexus. Take care. Thank everyone. you. Thank you very Thanks for listening to Voices of Nexus. Don't forget to check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook.